Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of the HP LoveCast podcast. I am Michelle Brittany, the editor of the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space and co-editor of Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern. I'm the book review editor at the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics, and I write on tiki culture and mummies in pop culture. And I am Nicholas Stoyak, pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies. I'm the editor of The New Peplum, also from McFarland, and I'm the other co-editor from Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern. For today's episode, we will be discussing Ian Welke's novel, End Times at Ridgemont High, published in 2015 by Omnium Gatherum. We'll finish the episode sharing news and other housekeeping items, including what we'll be discussing for next month's podcast. According to his bio at Amazon, Ian Welke grew up in the library in Long Beach, California. He received a Bachelor of Arts in History and then worked in the computer games industry for about 15 years. He sold a short story, a space western, that he wrote primarily because he was depressed that Firefly had been canceled. <laughs> I would be too, actually. Uh, he started writing full-time after moving back to Southern California, and since then his writings have appeared in anthologies, as well as him writing three novels. They are The Whisperer in Dissonance from 2014, The Bram Stoker-nominated End Times at Ridgemont High from 2015, and Four Corners from last year. All three can be purchased at the publisher's website, Omnium Gathering. And in case you missed it, we interviewed Eon on the Scholars at the Edge of Times podcast on Thursday, April 23rd. Links to that show are on our Facebook page and website. And now for the plot. So what is End Times at Ridgemont High about? Well, Evelyn is a freshman just starting her tenure in high school. Her older brother is Tim, a senior who works various dead-end jobs to save up money for college. Dean is a stoner who only takes surfing and bong hits seriously. Sarah is Evelyn's best friend and an upperclassman that all the other girls go to for advice. Chris is a shy student who has a crush on Evelyn. And Theodore is a man about campus who knows most of the school's inner workings. Together, they all attend Ridgemont High, where the new school year brings to this motley crew typical problems that young adults face. Losing one's virginity, asking someone out to the dance, coping with boring teachers, bullies, teen pregnancies, studying for big tests, trying to stop an apocalyptic death cult that worships Father Dagon and is already has control of this SoCal town in the high school, from ending the world and also planning for college. It's fast times at Ridgemont High meets the shadow over Innsmouth as Evelyn and company deal with cultish parents, deciphering tomes of forbidden knowledge, getting the elder sign tattoos to fend off evil, attending performances of the nefarious King in Yellow, and breaking into museums to steal artifacts and encounter giant Shoggoth-like beings, all in an effort to save the world, for the stars will soon be right, right on the last day of class. All right, so, Michelle, I guess uh, the first question would be uh, your thoughts on End Times at Ridgemont High. Was it a book that you enjoyed? Yeah, it definitely was. I feel that uh, what it tried to accomplish, which was to coalesce the various influences of Lovecraft writing as well as Lovecraftian writing 
and mashing up with various pop culture iconography, I think that it did an excellent job. I liked the humor incorporated into the story, as well as just uh, Ian's storytelling as a whole. Uh, so yes, I thoroughly enjoyed it. What about you? You know, uh, first impressions, it looks like it could be kind of a gimmicky book, uh, you know, combining a Lovecraft with a high school setting. But then I'm kind of reminded, you know, of the movie Brick, which, uh, you know, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, film that took the high school setting and made it a hard-boiled film noir. And, you know, that, that had gimmicky written all over it. But the end result was that that film was a, a masterpiece. It worked. It worked very, very well. And in a way, In Times at Ridgemont High is very much like Brick. It's almost as if the, the high school setting is set up to, to do even more kind of Lovecraftian stories. You know, most Lovecraft-type stories, uh, you know, Lovecraft didn't have kids in his uh, work. Kids are women. And successor writers also don't really explore that as well. So, you know, this, this book uh, has, uh, I would say, kind of charting new ground in that sort of way. There's only f very few other books that would do that. Maybe um, Justin Robinson's uh, Daughters of Arkham, although that wasn't as successful. But yes, the, the book is peppered with humor. You know, it does draw very much from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, so it carries some of that, uh, uh, you know, teen humor with it. And I think just, just by juxtaposing, you know, a high school setting with Lovecraftian horror, you know, just that kind of mashup just draws inherently absurd uh, humor with it. Yeah, and I, I think you make a good point uh, with regards to the various source material. Uh, Ian actually you know, sought out good pedigree as far as his mashup. Uh, as we mentioned, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is a kind of a cult uh, high school classic out there. Um, through our interview talking with uh, Ian for the Scholars at the Edge of Time, he brought up the fact that he had been influenced by Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I, we get senses of that. Um, I think as we further discuss, I know that there were other horror films and books that I felt that uh, that Ian drew from, um, so that I think that the mashup actually worked very well. And he was also pretty over it when he was talking to us that he drew very much from the, the Call of Cthulhu RPG game. If y'all uh, do listen to that interview, and again, we'll put that uh, link out there, you know, the genesis of this story was... Uh, you know, trying to make a Call of Cthulhu campaign through a high school setting. And uh, you can definitely, we'll talk about that in a little bit later, but you could feel those beats of like kind of a very adventurous, uh, you know, tabletop RPG style to it as well that doesn't come off written as if, oh, I just took a campaign and, you know, wrote a story around it. It, it feels, you know, truly uh, unique. It flows very well. It, it's a pretty well-crafted book. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would not have known that this was based on an RPG campaign because it was so uh, seamless as far as the various scenes. It didn't feel turn-based at all. Uh, the characters that he incorporated touch on that ensemble cast that works well in an RPG, but it didn't have the gimmicks and kind of that start-stops. He, he really did uh, smooth out those kind of edges and created a very cohesive story. Although I think that we will probably talk on a little bit of some plot issues uh, in our conversation with regards to this book. Well, speaking of plot, you know, one of the things that Ian does different aside from lift, 
you know, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is a, he's almost kind of an anti-Lovecraft writer with this story as well. I mean, all the hallmarks are there. There's Father Dagon, there's tombs of forbidden knowledge, there's cults and everything. But, um, spoiler alert, yeah, this, this dialogue will be full of spoilers. Um, you know, its ending is almost anti-Lovecraft. You know, most uh, Lovecraft stories, they end with some modicum of of success, you know, the, the characters are able to, you know, at least temporarily, you know, put Cthulhu, you know, back in, you know, the sunken city or cast a spell to, uh, you know, reduce uh, Kuru into ashes or escape from, uh, you know, Innsmouth and send in the Navy to bombard it. You know, they, they lose a little something in the process, usually their sanity, but there's still that kind of, you know, humanity remains at the end to keep on fighting. Um, Ian takes it the other extreme. Uh, we don't win at all in this book. In, in fact, it's so funny that uh, in most Lovecraft stories, you know, the characters will, and also in the RPG, you know, you, you do all this research, you uh, you you accumulate items and evidence and clues. You you really get to know what you're up against. And at the the very end of either the story or the game, you know, you're able to thwart the evil even if temporarily. Uh, and this book doesn't do that. I mean, it hits all the beats up to it. The, the the kids in this book, they do their research, they get equipped, they get tattoos, they they research all these uh, ancient tomes, they perform the rituals at the end, but in a true anti but also positive Lovecraft fashion, their actions are insignificant. They perform the rituals at the end, and, and they fail spectacularly. The bad guys totally win in this. And it's as if... Uh, Lovecraft has always been afraid to, like, go that step. His stories all should actually probably end that way because uh, the characters in Lovecraft writing, they are insignificant. That is the one, you know, one of the big things that's underscored in all his writing is our actions mean nothing. We're, we're just, you know, flies and specks of dust compared to these uh, elder gods out there. And, and Ian says, you know what? Uh, Lovecraft is afraid to cross that line. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Which kind of makes for a downer ending in a weird sort of way because the characters that you actually kind of get to know and love are, well, <laughs> unceremoniously killed. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the, the source materials that Ian brings into the story that I think works well and just in your conversation about the story ending on a downer and the fact that the human humans lose to the Cthulhu is Ambrose Bierce's uh, short story in occurrence on Owl Creek Bridge. The fact is the main character, Evelyn. Uh, well, yeah. Evelyn in the book, but oh, cool. in this short story, mm -hmm. uh, the fellow is, uh, he's, he goes through and he, he thinks that he escapes he goes back home, and right as he's about to be into the arms of his loved one, he comes back to reality, and, he, and he's hung from the bridge. And there's interesting things about that short story. One is it conveys a time of the Civil War. And the Civil War, it was well known for brothers taking arms against each other. And I really think that that's one of the things that we can basically take from that short story, apply to Ian's story. We have a civil war going on between various human fractions, uh, between the esoteric er, uh, order of Dagon 
and the kids in the high school, the ones that know what's going on and they're trying to do their due diligence to stop the ultimate you know, Cthulhu and Alder Gods and so forth from coming across. So you have that, that civil war going on. And um, at the end, our main character in that short story, as well as in the novel, are not successful. They, they die. Um, and I think that that, again, reaching back to Ian's uh, source material, the fact that he's pulling good pedigree for his story, I think is what really works here. And I, I hadn't read this uh, short story prior. I mean, in high school, uh, that was not one that we had to read. Um, but I did go through and read it. And I, I actually found similarities and parallels between that <clears throat> short story and his novel. And I think Ian does a, a really nice job uh, with kind of book ending. And he does that narrative structure with Dean. Well, so to make a hundred percent clear on this one, yeah, uh, Ian does draw heavily from uh, occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. You know, he makes it overt that uh, that Evelyn had to study this uh, short story. In fact, it's even brought up at the end. So, in a way, you know, us as readers kind of get one of those you know English class uh, quizzes while reading this book, which which is not out of place because in a high school setting, there's actually quite a few passages in here that kind of take you back to being in high school like oh yeah you know here's the deep reading on this you know we all had to read you know scarlet letter and all quiet on the western front now it's currents Al Owl creek bridge and this book captures it now you were talking about book ending and ian is really good at book ending he bookends evelyn's arc with um currents at Owl creek bridge he also bookends um Dean the stoner. The the book opens up with uh, Dean on a surfboard, and I think it's one of the most funniest uh, openings in any novel. Uh, we, we actually had the privilege to see uh, Ian at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, festival uh, down here in San Pedro many years ago, and he did a reading from the introduction, and, you know, if I may, the, the intro starts off with, uh, now Dean nails it more than I ever could, but Dean Bolick is baked. He's so baked, the ocean envelops him and holds him safe and warm. You know, it's it's a total, the, just that, you know, the, the first sentence is always, you know, supposed to be your attention-grabbing sentence. And I think that one, one, gathers your attention very, very well. Two, tells you exactly who Dean is. But the entire introduction is, <clears throat> you know, Dean's on a surfboard out in the, the beaches, and all of a sudden this giant, eldritch water wave comes in it's got this eye looking at him and everything it's totally horrific and of course he's half stoned out of his mind while this is going on well dean is also the only person to survive this book um it's in a weird sort of way as all the other characters research what's going on break into places fight monsters you know evade the the school uh you know e evilness and all that other stuff dean is on the outside of all this, and he happens to be the only one to actually survive the whole ordeal unscathed. And his ending is exactly the same as the beginning. He's on a surfboard out in the the ocean, watching you know the this gate open up and Father Dagon coming through. And there's a second moon in the sky. And as a side note, we'll talk about that second moon a bit more because that's just visually awesome. And, but he's out there just contemplating everything, all this weird stuff going on, and he winds up surfing to the second moon. And it's just a nice way to, you know, bookend uh, the in a Mobius strip kind of way. I, I'm always a sucker for that type of stuff, but but I think it's also this great 
technical writing on Ian's part to to do the story that way. Yeah, I would agree. I, I that the opening scene and the ending scene uh, really stand out to me. Um, there's a couple of other scenes, and I'm I know as we get further into the book, uh, we'll be talking about those. I'm sure, but uh, that that ending scene, if I may, mm-hmm. for all the the fans of John Carpenter out there, because Carpenter has done his fair share of Lovecraftian adaptations. The, the ending scene is very much in alignment with uh, his first film, uh, Dark Star, where at the end of that uh, movie, you know, their ship blows up and uh, one of the uh, astronauts or, you know, crewmen basically takes a shrapnel from the exploded Dark Star ship. It surfs into the atmosphere of another planet and burns up. In a weird sort of way, uh, End Times at Ridgemont High ends the exact same way in a kind of pre-Lovecraft John Carpenter fashion. And that movie's a dark comedy as well, so it's equally as fitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, him basically surfing into another reality is just such a great idea, and Ian pulls it off. It, it's very visual. You can, you're can you definitely on the surfboard with Dean as he... The, it just kind of takes everything in stride, and that's what's kind of interesting with with Dean as a character is that uh, he he doesn't work with the other students that are trying to thwart uh, the order. Uh, Dean is just out there by himself, uh, and he is able to just kind of roll with the waves, and that's his saving his saving grace. He's an anti character if you think yeah. about it. I, I'm thinking of the. Um... Oh gosh, I forget the director's name. He's the guy who did a uh, uh, Hostel. Uh, Eli Roth. You know, Eli Roth's first film was Cabin Fever, and that was kind of a you know a turn on its head of you know the the teens go out into the to the lodge in the woods and get killed off by a slasher monster or whatnot. You know, usually it's the the virginal women who you know live, and the the jockey men are the ones who die. But in that film, you know what happens in that film is there's tainted water and if you wind up drinking the water you, you get like a you know a skin disease uh but the characters that survive that film are the party animals because they're not drinking water they're drinking booze and doing you know other kind of you know uh scandalous activities in a way dean's character he's not as maleficent as those characters are you know he's just you know stoner but um you know, he's a lot like those characters in a way, though, because he's off doing his thing. He's he's doing drugs. He's doing, you know, pot and LSD. He he's actually able to, in one scene, communicate with a dead teacher who bestows upon to him more clues on how to deal with what's going on than all the other kids do while spending late nights studying on these forbidden tomes. Um, it's a reversal of, you know, what happens in Lovecraft stuff and also a reversal, reversal of what happens in, you know, horror films as well. And, you know, his character surviving all at all just by, you know, just embracing who he is in a weird sort of way. He's the most honest character with himself. A lot of the other characters are struggling in a not Lovecraftian way, in a normal high school way. The, the type of stuff that you would see in Fast Times at Richmond High or Pretty in Pink or Breakfast Club of, you know, characters also, oh, who am I? I'm a kid. I'm about to reach adulthood. You know, all the other characters are struggling with that as well. You know, Chris wants to ask Evelyn out. Evelyn instead sleeps with Chris's best friend. You know, there's drama there. And, and Dean's the one character who, well, maybe he misses out on a little bit of that character development, but in the process, 
winds up <laughs> surviving the whole ordeal. Yeah. Uh, I think you bring up a, a good point about about Dean. Uh, one of the things that Ian does with this book is he basically has it structured throughout a school year. So that the first few lines that Nick read from was like the day before the first day of school. And thereafter, it's structured uh, chapter by chapter, kind of progressing through the academic year. Uh, and through each chapter, we hear from a different voice. Uh, most of the time, I think it was Evelyn. Occasionally, we heard uh, from Chris, uh, Evelyn's uh, older brother, Tim. Um, and occasionally, we would hear from, from Dean. Not that often. Uh, do you wish in the story that you'd heard a little more from Dean? Or do you think that what this character has to do in the story, it works better that we don't know a lot about him? I think for this story, as a side note, real quick before I answer that, what Michelle's saying right here is, you know, it follows the school year. It's mimicking the plot of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. You know, Evelyn is um, the Jennifer Jason Lee character. Tim is the Judge Reinhold character. Dean is the Sean Penn Spagoli character. And that movie followed, you know, the beats of a year as well. So, you know, that's why you can see those kind of overlaps. Do I wish there was more Dean in the story? Not necessarily. It's weird because, again, in a, another kind of challenging of narrative structure here the story is mostly fixated on Evelyn but in a weird sort of way because it's mostly focused through what Evelyn sees you kind of get this false sense that the story revolves around her um you know she gets teen pregnant you know she goes to get an abortion you know she actually gets abducted to go to some sort of um I think it's the Chamber of Commerce, you know, they're like, yeah. they, they make references like, oh, the sacrifice and all this other stuff. There's all these like um, ominous things that make it sound like that Evelyn's more important than what she is. You know, there's a big fixation, like her parents are hardcore cultists. But it comes out that, as we talked about earlier, Evelyn's actually insignificant. She's not like the chosen one in a story, you know, you know, her, her aborted kid has nothing, almost anything to do with it. There's already plenty of kids that are going to be sacrificed at the end. One more of Evelyn being there is just icing on the cake. There are many times that Evelyn and her cohorts, they get captured, you know, they're captured by the police or whatever, or, you know, taken away to the chamber of commerce. And they're, they're, they usually escape or let go and surprisingly, you know, for this town to be under the influence of the esoteric order of Dagon, you know, they could be scooped up at any point and disappeared. And in fact, other characters suffer that fate. The uh, the football person who brings, um, you know, the best football player on the team, you know, gets absconded off. Uh, but Evelyn and cohorts, that they actually never get that fate because, again, they're insignificant to the whole you know, ordeal of what's going on. Uh, you know, the cultists, they can't be stopped, so who cares? We're just going to continue along our way. And I think that's, it's in a way, it's kind of a downer, but on the other way, it's kind of clever. Um, since we only see the story through their eyes, we're not privy to all the big, big, big things that are going on, so it does leave a lot to the imagination. And I think it leaves, I, I think Ian did a, a smart, smart move there because, we don't have their voices through most of it. I think the only adults that we hear uh, are typically Mrs. Thompson, who is the Mr. Hand equivalent uh, from Fast Times. And the head of security, who's also like, 
he's on that weird kind of half and half. He's not in on the end game of what's going on, but he's still trying to keep order of what's going on. But I think what works well here is the fact that we are only hearing a part of the story really builds on Lovecraft's technique of the questionable narrator reliability. I think that that works on many levels with this story. One, because we are only getting the student's point of view. We're also getting conflicting points of view between the students. Kids lie. For example, Chris notes how Evelyn is engaging with many boys as she's walking through the hallway one, one day as school is getting let out. He's wanting to be able to talk to her. I think he's wanting to ask her out on a date, whatever. Um, but he sees that there's all these people around her. Her She's engaging with a lot of people. However, with Evelyn's chapters, as we hear her voice, we're led to believe that she's all alone, that her best friend Sarah is sometimes there, sometimes not there. But in no, no instance do we get the sense that Evelyn is that popular. But because of Chris's interpretation of the events, he thinks that she is. And so he's shy and, and, you know, never really quite feels like he gets that moment where he can ask her out. The unreliability of the kids as narrators work very well because we don't know who's necessarily telling the truth. Inherently, we tend to think that, that teenagers are overdramatic, melodramatic, and that everything is so out of proportion with regards to the larger scheme. And I think that that's what really works here. I.e. see any John Hughes film. In another uh, fashion in, in terms of uh, narration is, yeah, we have the uh, unreliable narrators, but we also have uh, the classic Lovecraft device of, uh, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, epistem- epistemological uh, storytelling. You know, Lovecraft was very fond of, you know, using newspaper clippings and diary entries and whatnot. And uh, a good chunk of, uh, of dialogue in this story is done through uh, texting each other. And I think it's kind of a nice little updating of that type of uh, storytelling to be able to, you know, read the texts of what's going on between characters, what they're thinking, what they're planning, kind of what's going on. Well, and I think at a larger level, the way that Ian structures around an academic year kind of updates that, that same quality of the letter writing, the passage of time. This is just another way to demark it. Like we have the prom, we have Valentine's Day, we have, you know, Halloween with everything running amok uh, to prom and to the last day of school. I I think that works very nicely, actually. Uh, Kind of going off that, when it comes to events in the book, I think two of the kind of most important events that happen in here are the dual performances of The King in Yellow. Um, This is one, one of those instances where you know, Lovecraft uh, stuff has been overtly mixed in with uh, Chambers as King in Yellow. You know, some writers do that, others don't. Uh, Ian does that, and does it really well. Um, 
kind of the neat thing that Ian does is he puts on two play performances of The King in Yellow. And if anyone's read, you know, the original Chambers' collection of stories, you know, there's not much presented of what happens in A King in Yellow. You know, there's a couple passages here and there. You're mostly dealt with the effects of reading The King in Yellow. You know, you go insane. Well, that definitely happens in Ian's book, but, you know, Ian actually builds upon it. He actually... You know, it's kind of a blank slate. Hey, I'm going to do whatever I want with this. No one else has done it. So he actually adds, you know, scenes of what transpires in The King in Yellow. And you can see the effects of watching a, a play of it happen in real time. There's actually a really neat scene at prom where Sarah and uh, Theodore, I believe, they go together. And, you know, they're you know, there's a performance of The King in Yellow. And, you know, this strobe effect happens. And every time the... The light goes foot, foot, foot. You know, it alternates between reality and some sort of other dimension. There's like a fireplace that someone's dress catches on fire. It's it's nicely described and extremely surreal. And it's just, I would say, a nice, you know, successor text to The King in Yellow, building off of, you know, Chambers' very influential, important book. Yeah, Ian does an excellent job with regards to using the multiple realities w along with the pacing of his book, I think that he gives just enough descriptors without over describing what we're actually seeing. He leaves a lot for our own imagination. And, and again, I think that's what's always worked with, with Lovecraft and what he's known for. And I think Ian really encapsulates that narrative structure in his own book. Kind of moving on, one of the aspects that I latched onto was the locale. The fact that even though it's Southern California, um, we think of LA, um, San Diego, things like that. This is a coastal fictional town, but it's nestled within an actual region. We have Carson, which exists. We have Long Beach, uh, Dominguez Hills. I think that works nicely, and more importantly, the high school. I think that lends well to Lovecraft's sleepy coastal town, kind of a, a distancing from the rest of reality uh, happens when you're in a coastal town that is typically just a tourist destination or a drive-through as you're going on to another locale. What are your thoughts about that, Nick? You know, in, in real life, uh, many, many years ago, you know, we went to the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, which is over in San Pedro. And, you know, uh, the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival is usually up in uh, Portland, Oregon, which has a more, uh, I don't know, the Pacific Northwest seems more suited to Lovecraft-type writing. I, I know, like, William Pugmire wrote a lot up there, and you know, you have like Port Townsend and stuff, which seems to have that kind of old maritime quality. <clears throat> but I just remember, you know, our first year of going to the film festival in San Pedro, <clears throat> because it's outside L.A., it's like, this seems like the weirdest place to have this film festival. But when we actually got to San Pedro and went to the Warner Grand, it is, it's very old school. It does feel like it's a place that, yeah, you know, there's some modern stores there and everything, but there is that, that coastal, you know, uh, in a, you know, uh, new English, but without being new English vibe to it. There is a, 
a shadow over San Pedro in a weird sort of way. And that's where Ridgemont takes place is, you know, it's a fake town, but it is in that area. So, you know, after we've been to the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival a few times and explored a little bit of San Pedro and whatnot, it doesn't seem out of place uh, in, in our reality that uh, of where Ridgemont is. It totally feels Lovecraftian. I, I buy into it uh, perfectly. And in fact, Ian is able to kind of stave off the outside world from the story. You know, later in the book, you know, reporters finally descend upon Ridgemont to find out what's going on. And Ian's able to kind of, you know, a little bit of, you know, hand-waving, but able to, to deal with it. Uh, you know, the world never quite opens up on Ridgemont. It still kind of remains both part of the bigger world and yet isolated enough that, you know, Ian has his playground to play in. Um... In a way, it, it, I think a lot of good Lovecraft writers do that. You know, Lovecraft made his Arkham uh, country. You know, James Chambers made uh, uh, Kingsport, uh, which uh, which is up in Long Beach. Not Long Beach, I'm sorry, Long Island. Um, you know, a lot of folks, they, they make their own playground. They have to have their own reality separate from the real reality to deal with Lovecraft's fake reality. There's a lot of, you know, Russian doll type action going on there, but... Ian does pull it off. Totally bought into to Ridgemont High and the, the surrounding, uh, you know. And plus there's mentions of Del Taco, and I love Del Taco. <laughs> I think what also works for this, and it's something that we are seeing uh, some of the more contemporary writers engage in, and that's the idea of nostalgia. We saw that uh, or read that with John Langland's uh, Mirror Fishing in our last month's podcast where we talked about nostalgia. And I think that works well here as well. Um, again, pulling from Fast Times at Richmond High, I think most of us, if not, uh, yeah, I'm going to say the majority of us have been through high school. So <laughs> we, we know or that. Or at least it, have seen that film. <laughs> or at least have seen that film maybe recently. Not Not the case for me, but... Uh, I do remember high school, do remember kind of the melodrama and the, you know, secret, oh my gosh, you know, did you hear about this person being pregnant or, you know, having a crush on this person or that person. I think brings a little more of that nostalgia. It kind of carries on that concept. So even if high school has been a while for you, you might have gone to college and there'll, there'll be some similarities with regards to that. And I, I like that that play of nostalgia. I think that it makes it more attainable, more approachable than some of Lovecraft's material, which tends to be, well, honestly, it's an esoteric literature at times. And I think that this brings it into a more modern contemporary era. And I think it, it opens it up for new readers. I think this book does that. It's, it's weird. It's nostalgic without being nostalgic. It's inherently nostalgic because it does bring up, uh, you know, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And with it, it carries that 80s baggage of, you know, the John Hughes films, Pretty and Pink, Breakfast Club, and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, it's not full-on retro wave. Uh, this, this, it doesn't, you know, it's not like watching Stranger Things and listening to synthwave music. It still feels contemporary enough, but there is that... You know, because it's drawing from old school source material, it has that nostalgia in it. I, I could tell you one thing: the cover of the book makes me nostalgic for when I used to watch Saved by the Bell, uh, which is another you know Southern California you know based teen uh, sitcom. 
I actually thought of 21 Jump Street. 21, well, another, you know, old school, <laughs> you know, teen whatever as well. So I don't think it, it embraces full-on retrowave, but, and uh, you know, it's not quite like, you know, getting the vibe of reading an 80s Stephen King book, but I think it it hits enough of those beats that it's compatible with it. And, and overall, I think that's where one of this book succeeds at, especially in Lovecraft stuff. The book is obviously drawing from, and we said this many times, Fast Times at Ragemont High, King in Yellow, and Shadow of Rinsmith. But it kind of stays anchored to that. Nowhere else in this book will you will you see a mention of Cthulhu. Nowhere else in this book will you see other like Lovecraftian tropes that other readers, you know, expect in their literature. You know, not once does a character actually say Cthulhu Fatog and Yah Yah and all that other stuff that, you know, is usually just peppered in other stories to say, hey, I wrote a Lovecraft story. Um, you know, it's Lovecraft without, you know, drawing uh, on the cliches, you know, there, there's other cliches involved here. You know, I would say it draws the 80s nostalgic high school cliches, contemporizes it, and then marries it to probably one of the most malleable Lovecraft stories, which is Shadow Over Innsmouth. And because of all that juxtaposition, it, it works. It makes you nostalgic for reading Shadow Over Innsmouth. It makes you nostalgic for... Uh, you know, high school or high school pop culture uh, movies and whatnot. I think this is a great entrance for readers who may not be familiar with Lovecraft's writing. I think this is a good way to segue into that that universe, uh, those different writings. The Shadows Over Innsmouth is a, is a long piece, and uh, there's good and there's bad. I think that Ian takes all the good, and he wraps it into a nicely paced variety of voices that moves the story forward, has that nostalgia that's really popular right now, the, the 80s nostalgia and retro um, that I think really works. And yet he's, he's, he's laid that across the foundation of his experience with RPG running campaigns and knows how to hit those beats. Um, I will say, though, I think that there's a couple of missteps. Uh, I think with regards to the cell phone constantly dropping, I'm wondering if there might might have been another plot device to create that disconnect between the characters because that's one of the things that we have with the, the group of teenagers that are trying to work together is that the cell phone would go out. Well, we've had that before, and it does, Ian does kind of rely on that a few times. Uh, well, he does try to explain it, like, you know, there's weird stuff going on in the town as it gets closer to its ritual and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But it is true. As, as they get towards the end, you know, as you're reaching the climax, there is some stuff kind of, you know, kind of glossed over. Uh, you know, the town is basically going through an apocalypse right before the real apocalypse. You know, there's police and riot gear and whatnot. And, you know, the kids just kind of drive through town like, oh, at least we didn't get pulled over by them. Um, it is a little bit of hand-waving at times, especially, like, nowadays of, like, you know, COVID-19 going on where we're actually going through a real apocalypse where, oh, man, if you walk outside without a mask, you know, you might just get busted. But, you know, here's a town under the, 
you know, a ploy of an evil, you know, apocalyptic cult that has the police in their pocket. And they're like, I just drive along. Or, you know, hey, we've captured these kids. And I know we talked about it earlier that these kids are insignificant and they just kind of get let go. But at the same time, kind of feel like, you know, just, just kill them. <laughs> just be done with it. What's stopping you, you know? Well, I think you bring up a good point with regards to death scenes. And, and I know that they, one of the scenes that resonated for me, and that's the death of Tim. Um, I keep thinking back. I wonder, was he a mercy killing by his parents? Did his parents kind of set up that instead of him being sacrificed uh, to the elder gods, um, instead he is killed by uh what do what you, a, a, a robber that comes into the convenience yeah. store. Uh, the, the convenience store is robbed. He's in his like fourth, fourth job. Uh, he's just trying to earn some money so that way he can pay his way through college. Many of us have been there. We've, we've worked the, the, the crap jobs uh, as a way to try to save money for college. He, he really is kind of the every man, every woman character in the story. Um, and when he is just out of the blue, shot by this fellow that's a robber in the store. I kind of was like, what? <laughs> well, part, it, it, part of it, it, though, is it's a reversal of what happens in Fast Times at Ridgemont High because the Judge Reinhold character at the end of that movie is also working, like, at a convenience store, gas station, whatever, and it gets robbed, but he thwarts it, you know, becomes a hero and whatnot. But, you know, that's, you know, that's fantasy taken to the extreme. You know, in a weird sort of way, this is, it's... It's more, in a weird sort of way, more real life. You know, if you're getting robbed and person has a gun, uh, you're, you, chances are, yeah, you're dead. And it's it's kind of, it's in a weird sort of way, it is, it's anticlimactic, but it's it's also tragic. But like you said, it also seems like it is a mercy killing uh, for Tim. In fact, I think his last line is, as he dies, it's a humorous, like, jab of, oh, at least I don't have to come to work again, because... You know, in a weird way, he prefers death to the humdrumness of working these, you know, crap jobs at these, uh, you know, burger places and convenience stores. And, and uh, you know, as adults here, you know, I hate to break it to you, Tim, but life doesn't get better for a lot of us. <laughs> you know, you, you move up from the gas station to doing data entry and maybe project management or something. Um, not glamorous jobs, that's not, for not, sure. Not glamorous jobs. And and you know what? In in the post-apocalyptic world in this one, you know, what what is his fate? You know, he's probably gonna be fuel for the human furnaces if this is like a you know, a James Chamber story or something like that. So maybe he he is one of the lucky ones. You know, Dean survives, but guess what? He's like on the, the moon of Carcosa or something. Um, you know And who knows what waits there for him. Well you you know what? I, I said earlier, Dean's ending makes me think of John Carpenter's Dark Star. You know what else it makes me think of? The ending of The Void, where, you know, they oh, go through true. the triangle, and they're mm -hmm. just in this other world of giant pyramids in the sky, and they're just desolate and all by themselves, which is also a throwback to Lucille Fulci's The Beyond. Yes. That, that's that's Dean's fate. He's His, his fate is, uh, you know, the same as the... Uh, uh, the characters in the void, I think, which is, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that's good or bad or, or, well, you know, he's got his surfboard and there's still waves, so maybe he'll be okay. Well, and hopefully he took uh, some um, extra uh, substances to get him <laughs> through. I, I don't know. Um, 
but I know that we are getting close to our hour, um, and I definitely would like to be able to bring up a couple of other scenes and some other factors with regards to this book, and I'm not sure if you picked up on them or not, um, but a couple of things as far as narrative techniques is the inclusion of cats or cat smells um, or sounds, I mean. He usually, uh, Ian typically uses it with regards to the uniform, uniformed students. We didn't really touch on them uh, in our conversation, but over the school year, many of the kids seem to kind of conform to the church and they're recognizable through their uniforms, but they become like non-entities. Their, their identities become like almost a hive or I would even say like a Borg technology. Village where, of the Damned? Yes, Village of the Damned, uh, The Brood, things like that. Body where, snatchers. Yeah, I had that on my, on my uh, pop culture list or other horror list is the fact that they become this hive mentality and at, at, at various points Ian says, you know, they hissed like a cat and things like that. And I just, I just thought those were nice little touches. The other thing that I thought that Ian does well is the use of smells throughout the book. Bong hits. Um, like bond hits? Bong hits. He offered Dean and his bong hits. Oh, well, no. I, I was making a joke. Keep going. Keep oh, going. okay. Yeah, I was like, what are you talking about? Um... <laughs> But the visceral description of odors throughout the book, for example, uh, Chuck's apartment, uh, the the fellow that Evelyn meets and and has sex with on the underneath the bleachers, you know, smells like feet and old cheese. Tim's burger, the meat is off but is masked by onions and bacon. The the cafeteria, you know, this nasty smell. And one of the other scenes that's really great is Chris's uh, metamorphosis into the fish person. You know, he's in the bathroom. The smell is just absolutely horrid. Okay. He has the worst diarrheas. I feel so bad for his character. He's so shy. And at the end, he turns into a, an Innsmouth-type critter. But his metamorphosis is, you know, it's, it's slow over time and... It gives him the runs, and poor guy, what a way to go. And the descriptors, the, the smells, um, is just, oh, so, so horrific in themselves. But the use of smells, the descriptions are, are well done in the book, and I think that that Which is one of the hardest scents to convey yes, in a book. Uh, between a smell and taste, and, and it's, it's rare that you would have the taste but Ian does a nice job with regards to the smell that you could then therefore connect to the taste. Uh, so that is one area where I think uh, Ian excelled with, and I'm not sure how many people would necessarily pick up on that. Um, I do have a question for you as, as we start wrapping up. My, my wonder, do you feel like the story is weakened at all by the fact that we don't have the adult POV, like the esoteric order, that we don't have more from, for instance, from Evelyn's mom, why she was so angry with her daughter. Does that work, or should we have had more from that side? It, it's mixed bag. You know, it, for the story, it works. 
you know, in real life, I'm not privy to the machinations of the entire world around me. You know, you, you and I, we, we both work jobs. We don't know what higher-up managers are doing or what's going on behind the scenes or whatnot. We kind of trust ourselves to the, uh, to the system out there. And this book operates the same way. You know, there's that character that comes in with the coin that winds up getting Tim fired from his first job. You know, there, there's a story behind all that. You know, what's going on at the Chamber of Commerce? What what are uh, Tim and Evelyn's parents doing every night? You know, it's a whole bunch of unanswered questions that, as a reader, we're curious about. And are they answered in Ian's book? No, no, not at all. Shame on you. I want answers to those. But but the fact of the matter is, is that's the POV of the book, and I, I get that. It leaves me hungry for more, that if Ian did a parallel story that was more of a instead of the POV of the kids, but more of a, a God's eye view of what's going on, it would be nice to see, oh, here's what really happened behind the scenes, and this is why some of this stuff mattered or didn't matter. But at the same time, I also know that that would take a little bit of the charm out of it, a little bit of the mystery. It'd be like going back to the original point of, you know, this was kind of uh, based off of, you know, a Call of Cthulhu campaign. It'd be like at the very end, all right, adventure's over. Everyone, here's the Dungeon Master's notes. Here's all the clues that you didn't see. Here's everything that, all the rooms you didn't go into. Here's all the stuff you didn't encounter and laying it out there. At the same time, you're like, oh, man, we missed all that stuff. But at the other time, you're like, ah, you know, did we really need to know that in a weird sort of way? So, I, so it's a mixed bag. I, I'm a curious person. I want to know what's going on. I think if Ian did a second, you know, story, short stories, because it is, you know, even though it takes place at a school through an entire uh, entire school year, it does open up, uh, you know, the possibility of short stories that are parallel to it or, you know, supplemental documents or whatnot to it. But even it, the book still succeeds without that. Okay. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I, th I think that, I think he had a nice balance. Yes, there, there's issues that are left unanswered, but I think that's what made Lovecraft great is to to not give you every single insight and to allow the book to ruminate in your mind after after you've read the last page um, to give resonance uh, resonance to the story that makes you think about that story beyond uh, finishing the book. And so, good job, Ian. All right. It was an excellent book, but let's talk about what's coming up next time. So as for upcoming events, we have our monthly Voice of Olympus, Scholars at the Edge of Time, uh, scheduled for Thursday, May 28th at 6 p.m. That's Pacific Coast time. Our guest will be Dino Parenti. He's the writer of dark literary and speculative fiction. His work can be found in Pantheon Magazine, Menacing Hedge, Pithead Chapel, and a number of other anthologies. Uh, for this episode, we will focus on his short story collection, Dead Reckoning and Other Stories, that have been published by Crystal Lake Publishing in 2018. And going on now and through May 17th, McFarlane is running a 40% off sale on all their performing arts and pop culture titles. That's over 2,000 books. Titles range from horror and science fiction uh, films, old-time radio, biographies from the golden age of Hollywood, current television series, theater, dance, whatever your interest, you are sure to find it at McFarlane. The coupon code is POP40, 
So navigate to mcfarlandbooks.com and save 40% now through May 17th. And it should be noted that we have a couple books that are part of the sale. And for all you Lovecraft fans out there, Michelle's book, Horror in Space, contains quite a few Lovecraft essays, including mine on meteorite horror films, which is very strongly uh, influenced by the color out of space. And our newest book, uh, Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also has a Lovecraft and weird fiction essay in it as well. So next month's episode of the HP Lovecast podcast, we'll be discussing two short stories from the Dark Regions Press anthology, Return of the Old Ones, Apocalyptic Lovecraftian Horror. Specifically, we're going to be discussing Sorrow Road by Tim Wagoner and Strangers Die Every Day by Cody Goodfellow. So you can navigate to Dark Regions Press website if you'd like to pick up this copy, a copy of this book, and follow along with us as we discuss Wagoner and Goodfellow's short stories on episode 28th, which will post Sunday, June 7th. And of course, uh, we can be found in all sorts of social media forms uh, as HP Lovecast, no periods between the H and the P. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as at our website, hplovecast.com. And, of course, you can always email us at hplovecast at gmail.com if you want to, I don't know, give us some nice words. We'll always take that. Um, and, of course, if you look down in the show notes, you'll be able to find all of our social media links as well. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope that you consider checking out Ian's work in Times at Richmond High. He also has a lot of other Lovecraftian writing out there as well. So we hope this is a gateway for you to check out his work. Thanks for listening. <laughs>